Welcome to the MacPFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Angela Garzuzzi offer her perspective on spiritual care. She talks about how she got into her role, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, and she also shares some interesting patient stories. We hope you enjoy. Well, hello. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Good to see you and good to talk with you. So, Angela, why don't you start by telling us who you are and what you do? So, I am a spiritual care practitioner uh, in terms of my profession. Um, I am also uh, a mum and an auntie and um, almost a grandmother. Um, I'm an immigrant. Um, I'm a South African originally. And um, yeah, my work is probably, it's the the largest sort of part of my my life. Um, And it's something I love very much. Um, the work that I do is I do in different places as well. So, um, yeah, we can unpack that a little bit more. Great. Yeah. So uh, tell me what your role is in the hospital. I know that you practice out in British Columbia. That's right. Um, I'm in the hospital for half of the time. So in the acute setting. And then I also do half of my time is out in the community. Um, And so it's really actually a wonderful circle that I get to being a part of when people are ill and they are in really intense crisis um, I can be with them um, and then when they may go home um, I can follow and so you don't have the abandonment that often happens when people are in crisis and they're establishing these relationships and then you know they're bouncing around to different uh, different people care, you know, people offering them care. That's one of the challenges of the the medical system. Too many different pieces. Right. And how do you first meet these individuals that you then develop relationships with? So that's also been a fascinating thing, seeing this uh, maze, um, this planet of the healthcare system. It continues to be an eye-opening thing. So I will meet people sometimes because they've never even been known by the community. They've come into hospital, they've had a fall, they've, they've, you know, they've got this pain that, that's just suddenly happened. And so 
then their tests done, you know, and then they get this diagnosis that they have cancer or something like that. And so I may be called and that would be where I'd meet them. And um, after surgery or whatever it is, then they go home and maybe they're going to start with chemo or that kind of thing. So I can, I can see them at the clinic and, or I can, you know, go home, meet them in their home and, and um, so on. But I also, then there are folks that get, that get, caught by the community health system and so there'd be people who've been you know been cared for for quite a long time older people perhaps or their disease has progressed and now they're sort of more palliative and then I will be asked you know to come and see them so I can meet them in various points in all of these parts of the journey of medical crisis. Yeah how did you start this role and how did you know that this was the type of role that you wanted to have in the healthcare system? So that is um, a story that I still kind of find amazing. Um, um, Actually, there's a quote by one of the authors of a story that I read that was quite key in terms of my journey towards towards this vocation, Wendell Berry's book, Jaber Crow. But Wendell Berry talks about uh, the way that we, we only realize that we, we are supposed to have done something when we look back and see it. It's more mm. that we stumble into it. And I, I feel that that's sort of what happened. Um, you know, if I think about why I found my way to this place, I almost want to say, well, once upon a time I was born um, because that's one of the things that was so striking to me in, when I was even just, a, a pro, you know, considering this was how important my story was. The autobiographical piece of who I was is, was required. I was asked to write an autobiography, but even before I went for my first interview to find out if I would possibly be allowed into the program. And that has been very um, much, that's been quite a um, uh, distinctive piece of the kind of person, the identity of a spiritual care practitioner um, is that you have to most, almost first and foremost, you have to be as self-aware as as possible, um, you have to know your own story. You have mm-hmm. to know your own viewpoints and 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 experiences and places where you hurt and your own cultural frameworks, um, your own faith. All of these things so essential. If you are going to sit with people that you do not know, complete strangers in their most vulnerable moments and um the training is also quite sort of rigorous and um Mm. difficult because it it can be quite uh, messy um because of the 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 rigor with which you are expected to face some of your stuff you know um but yeah my background is from i was you know grew up in south africa but i was also from a lebanese my Lebanese roots, which if I want to say one thing about that community, it's warm and hospitable. That was my experience of it. And so I, I feel that was a big piece of what I, what attracted me to this, the whole, um, the, the hospitality element of, of welcome, welcome to the, to the stranger. 
Um, and and I, you know, I had a mothering, I had a mothering parenting role in there, um, and the immigrant piece became quite important as well. And then, you know, my own faith journey, which was also, you know, undergoing in the years before the recent years before this, um, my own faith um, was really undergoing a whole transformation, crisis, and and so on. So. Um, I was looking for something new. I was looking for a, for a different vocational path. And, and I, I read Jaber Crow and, and the character Jaber Crow is a barber in this little town. Um, and, and the, there's this amazing, he, he's a, the barber, but he's not just the barber. He somehow he's actually also the pastor of mm this community the barber shop is where everybody goes it was like the heart of that little town and he describes the way this man sort of lays his hands on the heads of his of his clients and I kind of caught something there that there was a caring that was intimate and so so I sort of thought oh gee maybe I should do cosmetology Huh. Well, I did. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, maybe it's here. I, you know, I love, you know, I don't know. People tell their, their stylists to everything, right? So I thought, okay, well, let me go that way. So I actually got my license and um, and I, I was sort of trying to find my way, but it it was not, It was, in the end, it didn't, you know, that's not where I stayed. Um, yeah, a whole lot of personal things too that just, I, I found myself um, in doing the master's to, to qualify for uh, the spiritual caregiving um, and discovering, you know, the medical system, because of course you can do spiritual care in so many different places, including prisons and that sort of thing. But um, yes, uh, I should stop there. I think, yeah. So I, I'm doing my work in the place where I did a lot of my training. Mm. So I did, I did get to know some of the hospitals quite well and, and then sort of found work there too. So. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, you know, that I've also spoken with your colleague, Matthew. And so I, I understand that you all work together in a team there. Mm-hmm. And so do you have different roles within the team or do you all assume very similar roles and you each individually reach out to the patients and clients in similar ways? Well, there are different um sort of levels of, you could say, expertise in terms of the spiritual care profession. And so you may be somebody who supervises as well as educates. Um, You may be, you know, somebody who's sort of even in director position, um, the spiritual care practitioner, like myself, for example, if I'm in a hospital, like I am, I'm pretty much expected to go everywhere including the the psychiatric unit you know emergency um so there's a sort of sort of a minimum level in which you've got to be able to step into various different contexts um yeah but i think if you're in larger teams uh, it does give you the, the opportunity to actually then say could you please perhaps ask somebody who you know has more experience with that or you know if the different qualities of course 
different faith traditions that can also really be wonderful when you can match people mm. with some of that um, gender things I mean it just you don't always have that possibility but everybody is in slightly different contexts and specializing in different things you know slightly different things and so mm. um, you you learn from one another so that is yeah so the answer is yes and no, I guess. Yeah, right. And, you know, when I think about your individual roles and the experiences that each of you brings, you mentioned earlier that really as a spiritual care practitioner, you really have to know yourself, understand yourself and the history that you bring. And so just with everyone's different histories that I imagine each of you brings a different perspective in a sense to your interactions with your patients and your clients. When you think about just even the past two years of COVID, do you have any situations or uh, circumstances that come to mind that really you think back and say, you know, this is exactly where I need to be. And this, these experiences where this particular situation validates that, yes, this role, being a spiritual care practitioner, is what I was meant to do. Oh, gosh. Well, yes. Um, I could talk for hours about that because I definitely have had many times and they've been so different uh, where I felt like I, you know, that sense of deep reward um, where I was able to be so much of my whole self you know that is one of the things that we are supposed to do is provide whole person care the person you are with is a whole person and you bring your whole person so that's why the self-awareness piece is so important because you are never going to sort of neutralize yourself into somebody without all of your prejudices and all of that stuff. We will always be, you know, uh, have a subjective sort of view on the world. There's no such thing as, as objective objectivity in that sense. But if you are aware of it, at least you've got a fighting chance to filter some of it in. And the idea being that you would not interfere, you would limit your interference of what the other person feels that there's space for. So, yeah, I, you know, I, the pandemic's been such, such a beast. And the experience, I, I actually was in the COVID units from within like two weeks of the pandemic. We were very happy that our team um, was actually permitted to be in as essential workers. Uh, not all teams got that. Um, and so we were able to just, you know, do what everybody was doing, don everything, all the PPE and go in there into these places where it was just, it was so hard. And I've, I really, some of the people that I met in those hot I mean when I think about being in these rooms with all that stuff on it was so uncomfortable um, and it sort of focuses you in a sense because you are just listening 
and and looking and even that through all of this stuff right um and you're so aware that this person is seeing another yellow blob mm. you know the gown and the goggles and that's all they could see so you kind of have to somehow you want to sort of like um illuminate and 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 accent accentuate your humanity um to sort of somehow escape and transcend all of this ppe but i i mean the 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 loneliness and the anxiety i mean that really changed to mm-hmm. the, the first 6 months and the anxiety that was in those rooms where those people were just like one person in a room and they were there for weeks and weeks and you know i remember the the one night um it was you know quite late but going in now the night shifts coming in and um there was a a person who uh you know how a person who's who's aggressive verbally or you know even physically or something like that but you know there'd be a, an indication on their chart or on the door that this person um can be violent um and so there was this person who the staff were feeling very the, the nurses were feeling you know they were doing the shift change and they were that had a, a, a difficult well the patient was really struggling because they're trapped in this room they are feeling terrible they're actually scared all of this stuff and mm-hmm. the nurses are just either exhausted or they're sort of thinking oh my goodness what is the night going to bring and so i was told um you know well you know maybe you could go in and see him and so i went in looking i realized like everybody else so i had to find a way to to be somehow not the people that he, you know the person's been had been so frustrated with um mm-hmm. it's anyway and i i sort of introduced myself but i didn't want to get thrown out of the room because that happens mm. and so i had to i had to say not too much and not too little to to just be allowed in and then asked if i could pull up a chair mm. and i did that and this person just began to talk and you know really was getting all the stuff off their chest and um he just kept going and i, I just listened mm. um and at some some point in there it just went quiet and then he said you are the first person who has sat down mm. and that i i'll just never forget that moment because the nurses were also scared and they were under instruction reasonably reasonable instruction go in do what you have to do and get out mm-hmm. you know we didn't know even how dangerous this all was what would happen if i was working in this you know covid unit for an entire 12 hours right we we didn't know those things and so um it, it yeah so the fact that i wasn't coming to do something to hit this person's body i didn't have a job i just came to be this was the powerful thing this was the gift to him and i actually 
I don't remember if I said anything helpful mm. in, in another sense than listened. I held his story and his his self with you know calm kindness with respect um and that was the gift to him mm. so it really helped it really helped he, anyway okay I, I remember matthew sharing a um an example of how as a spiritual care practitioner you're going into your interactions uh, with the perspective, or he, he used the analogy of a, a cup, and that every person is different in terms of the type of cup that they are. So I, I think he described a plastic cup, someone who is much more malleable in their own perspectives, or much more um, flexible versus another cup that was glass or porcelain. And it seems like this is such a beautiful example of you coming to this individual's room and being there to listen. And that act of listening and that act of being present was like you holding what he needed to share mm -hmm. in that cup. Yes. And um, I, I believe that the cup analogy, um, yes, I mean, Every person is different and in a different state. Um, I know that the Matthew has used that analogy also to sort of try to describe the way that our our framework for understanding the world, um, you know, may be more or less flexible or you know fragile yes. or shaped. Right. In, you know, this kind of these kind of the tint of our glasses, the way we see the world and. Um, but you know what else I think was so powerful um, that I have, this happens so often um, in the hospital, as everybody knows, the pace is just nuts and you have to get used to it, right? You, you gotta, you gotta uh, deal with it because there's no escape. Um, but we do forget because we as sort of staff, we have lists of things to do. So it's not difficult to just want to get down that list. Um, the person in the bed does not have that list. The person is stuck. They're in their pajamas, which is another thing that I often, you know, I, I'll have these moments where it will hit me that I, all of the staff are in clothing. We, we dress like people who do. And then there's all these people, these little soft little people with all these owies, yes. you know, like in their pajamas. Yes. Or Just even that. sometimes with a thin gown and oh. not much more. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's just the, the, the power, you know, mm. differential there is just it blows your mind mm -hmm. um and and so even just with that so then I think Matthew had sort of spoken about that you know piece of the waiting the yes power. that's a, exactly what I was just thinking too yeah, yeah. I mean so but as I say I think from the perspective of of the people who are in power and I am one of those people I can come and go as I you know as I please um anyway 
we forget. Uh, so my role is a gift in that I don't have to take all the person's statistics, their vitals, right, and I and get answers from them. And in fact, I'll be quite careful about how and if I ask questions. You know, there's a time for just not asking questions. I'm, I don't want to go in and be yet another person who needs stuff from this person. You know, so I'm that. So the ability to just be and to allow the patient, the, the person to um, have the power to break the silence, to, to do whatever they want to do. That agency is such a gift mm. to them because there's a, such a loss of agency, a mm. loss of agency, the helplessness that the person feels already with their body doing stuff that they really would rather, you know, they're sort of out of their hands and then on top of it all, they're in a system. It does not go according to what this person in the, in the bed would like either. So it's profound helplessness um, where you just suddenly, absolutely passively have to, you know, be taken care of. Um, mm -hmm. So the image that comes to mind as you're talking is that you, you come to a patient, a person, and you are giving them a bit more, a bit of their power back that you are bestowing on them by your waiting exactly. on them a bit more dignity, a bit more recognition of their personhood. And those small acts add up to a point where I'm guessing that the person then feels that tipping point to where they now feel comfortable sharing with you. Mm -hmm. and unburdening on their concerns onto you and to share with you their fears or their hopes or their questions. And you're there to then listen. And you're there to provide that support and to hold their stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, ex exactly. And, and so, you know, you can imagine that it, it happens where people do not even realize what they're holding, right? Until that open that that space is provided and they step in and that's when they sort of oh my goodness you know I didn't know I've had so many times people will say oh I'm so they'll apologize for crying or whatever it is and they'll say oh my goodness I didn't even I didn't know I was I was feeling all that you know yes. oh, we all know this is a very human experience mm. um so yeah, there's just there's something about the hospital, the the sort of theoretical idea that it's coming, it's going to help you, it's going to fix you. You come in there broken, it's going to fix you, and I think that's part of the struggle is that is that the hospital can actually be very harsh and very um, uncaring. Um, in, in many ways, especially mm. in terms of the system and how the system, the, the you know, the faceless um, system, which is a system that's doing its best, uh, you know, I think to do a very difficult thing. But that is also something that's there for us. We think of ourselves as hoping to bring more humanity um, or to restoring more humanity 
to just the whole system because the system I think is almost got a sort of a, a an unspoken drive to dehumanize mm. and you know so yeah yes and I remember you uh, speaking or you alluding to some group level or programs that you've also been involved with creating and initiating. So taking it beyond your work with individuals one-on-one, but do I also remember correctly that you've also worked to develop programs or, or structures to support groups of individuals? Um, do you know, my own experience with group work has been um, primarily in the psychiatric context. So that, that's been also just a wonderful experience and quite different, um, mm. again, to one-on-one. But the group work that I just got so excited by, it was for staff care. And that was taking care of staff in their teams and in a way that sort of facilitated horizontal connection with one another um, as well and creating sometimes, you know, we would do some mindfulness or conversations, different things happened in different units where sometimes people would just sort of start talking about something that had happened, they'd be debriefing or they were talking about even you know why they were why they were nursing um and sort of got into some of that stuff as well which which really was so inspiring and rejuvenating to them but also for their their uh, colleagues sitting around drinking tea you know so we we took a tea cart into the units and used the cart as a almost well I sort of saw it as an oasis like a rolling Mm. oasis that drew physically but also just offered sort of a multi-sensory connecting point but were very intentional about making it something that was we hosted by a spiritual care person and so you know we're applying all of the the perspectives and the the holding and the attending and the compassion and the reflection and the the you know the silence the the just allowing there to be to be quiet or unanswered the mystery all of that stuff is going on um it just happens to be a group did you initiate this the tea cart oasis idea? Because if I, I'm imagining that, given what I know about you and your um, very quick to uh, host your your mm-hmm. your um, my hospitality mindedness, yeah, yeah. especially when it comes to tea, was this <laughs> a part of uh, an idea? Was this an idea that you initiated? <laughs> It, you know what, um, Matthew Hain um, had some experiences of it that he brought with him from, I believe, some hospitals in, in LA. Um, and so I jumped on it. Um, <laughs> yes. So I just, I just, I jumped on it and I ran with it. So <laughs> I, I definitely did build it. And so it was, it was, um, 
we're we're just going to start doing it again. So I'm very happy we, we're going to we're going to bring it back. It's been a couple of years. Since oh, we that's great. Now you have to bring the tea and some South African rusks as well, and then <laughs> oh, <laughs> have yes. a staff. Oh, I wish staff yes. time. <laughs> yes. How I wish. So yeah, we will. We have baked goods, but the the baked goods will be individually wrapped. So, <laughs> oh dear, more social isolation. I mean, you know, the true. Yeah, that's a good point. Baking. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, that's a good point. So, well, thanks for sharing those stories. Now, uh, from as as healthcare providers uh, from a variety of professions are listening to this podcast, are there some takeaways? from your perspective as a spiritual care practitioner that you would really love to share with your fellow healthcare providers in the hospital, working alongside, working together to support patient care? Um, gosh, that is a very, very good question. So one of the things that I notice in the teams that I'm in is that the spiritual care person can sometimes be sort of viewed that viewed as a very niche sort of role that this is the person that maybe only comes if somebody needs prayer right Um, or if somebody's sad maybe they need company I mean, you know, when people are lonely, they will sometimes call for spiritual care. And of course, there is some, there is some spiritual distress in that too. But, um, but there have been times when I, I, I was sort of amazed uh, where I would be working with a person for even months and charting my conversations, some of the the larger sort of arc of their story and their journey and their whole illness narrative. Um, And somebody would sit down with this person and drop a bomb on them, uh, just deliver, you know, news in, in a way that may not have been good news, but just in a way that it was as if they had not no sort of number one they they often didn't know the person right this happens because they are every two weeks right you've got all the doctors changing on one unit for example so there's no there's no relationship but they have to do this job they've got to come and do this bad news and so there are these other parts of the team that could really have helped that conversation and just made it really a hundred percent different um because sometimes people have had bad news and that is not why they are sobbing when i see them it was the sense that they were being just dismissed that they were being utterly yeah utterly uh humiliated really um, and, and so then I sort of think, my goodness, you know, we, we can sometimes be a little invisible. Um, so that, that uh, we, we, there are things that one can do because you have built trust with the, mm. the patients. So they've got, they just feel very safe. 
with us. So, so the the power of that that person to support the hard parts of what has now gone wrong in the you know in terms of the the illness. Um, I just feel we are we're not always used. Um, we, yeah, we we're not always used uh, where we could be. Wow. No, I think that's a great example. That, that's yeah, it's it's an example. I can tell a, a story um, that was a memorable experience with somebody who who had a, a brain injury with enough damage that they did not understand what had happened. They did know. They didn't know who they were, so it, it was, you know, really like a stroke, but they were unable to swallow. They were unable to, you know, even had a sort of a breathing tube at one point, but they, especially they were awake uh, pretty soon and then able to, uh, with, this, with this feeding tube, and they were confused. They were angry. They were... Um, it just the combination that they had to be restrained. Um, they couldn't communicate, so they couldn't speak properly, but they had enough of their conscious, their uh, awareness and their own, you know, history and all of this going that they, they knew that they were being restrained. They, they, they knew, you know, of course, when things were, were hurting them, they were, you know, wanted to eat. They just, that they knew these tubes were so uncomfortable and things sticking in their body and just, you know, so over time, oh my goodness, the, the patient became so, so angry and so alienated from not just the team members, and they moved from one unit to the next unit to the next unit. So that did not help. But the patient kept, you know, having to like get to know a whole new set of people. And, and they were in danger of hurting themselves. The complexity of, of all of the stuff where the person's um, sense of self and an agency and just was in a thousand pieces. That was what I what mm. I felt. I was sort of seeing a shattered self and mm. a, and a chaotic self. Um, so I was able to um, to work with the family, which really really helped. So the family can give you pieces, right, of of the person's story and so on, to facilitate the things that you may talk about. And there came a point where I saw the person uh, in the middle of the day and they were so much happier and calmer that mm -hmm. afternoon that, um, that I was asked to please come back as often as I could, because if I could just come back at about that time again tomorrow and the day after the day, um, that would really help because it was the bad spot in the day and it just sort of got the person. Um, and I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know, um, to, there was something that I could do that was 
it just it just kind of it felt different in in some sort of way you know it felt like it was this piece that fitted into all these puzzles the, the mm. whole puzzle you know that was there um and and there were times where i would just sit down and s- there'd be this quiet you know that just sort of settled because the person couldn't do much so they really just kind of like stuck so what are you going to do with it, with that there's a static, you know, sort of state um, that's there and, and the person can't say much and all of that, right? But there would be this moment of really attending 100% and I would look into their eyes and they would know and they would look into my eyes and there was this moment of absolute recognition that we were a hundred percent in each mm. other's gaze, you know? Mm. And then I would say, how are you doing? And my goodness, you know, sometimes the person would just start crying. They wouldn't even talk. They wouldn't even try and say words. They would just have these tears. They were just rolling down, you know? <laughs> and you know, it still gets to me because I really, I felt like this person felt a little bit like an animal, mm. you know, that the state that they were in over all that time, there had been, I mean, there were, there was so much needed to take care of this person. I didn't blame any of the, of the staff. Like I felt that the staff did an incredible job but it didn't change the extreme alienation, the internal alienation that this person was experiencing, you know? Yes. Um, and, and those moments and the, the humor where, you know, there would just be an exchange because this person actually had a wonderful sense of humor. And that would be a beautiful thing to see that by the end of the visit, the the person's humor was starting to kind of come out and and that you just know right that changes your whole being we didn't necessarily do the conversations I would have done with somebody else about you know to tell me you know how you feel and what about this and can you this was just a, a time of being with in a way that was respectful and and sort of there was a sense of the dignity of the person, right? And and this for all of the injury, the person, their 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 spirit knew what was happening. Yes. And it and it changed. It changed them at that moment. So I mean, that was just one of those, yeah, that was one of those rare, extremely difficult times mm. where um, yeah. What a beautiful story. Anyway. Wow. What a beautiful story. And it reminds me that as we talk about working in the healthcare environment, what a great example of what it means to restore the health of someone by demonstrating care and demonstrating listening and hearing a person, seeing 
and uh, being seen. Mm -hmm. And when someone feels that they are heard and they're understood, Mm -hmm. how that restores their sense of dignity and validates their humanity. And I feel that that touches on the deepest levels of the care that we're attempting to provide them in the hospital, out of the hospital, in our healthcare system is reaching that deeper level of healing for the whole person. Exactly, exactly. That word healing, right? Yeah, yeah. Because we do want to try to heal the leg or the the organ or the whatever. But on an even more profound level, it's really a a spiritual healing that is part of that physical, um, you know, those parts of our humanity are very deeply intertwined. And, um, And the healing that can happen spiritually is not limited to the physical limits that our body, you know, has. So there's a real power in the, in the power that our spiritual um, wholeness can bring to, to our entire being. It's, it's just, it's this, this work is given me, uh, you know, continues to give me this, um, profound awe um, and very humbling thing because you constantly realize that there's more more and more and more you know um, which we know also about our own selves but um, you know never to to presume and to sort of take you know things do are not always what they seem and so just you know to sort of develop a stance of humility and um, curiosity. So that that is part of also why I love this work because it demands difficult things of me, <laughs> you know, um, which I'm grateful for. And I feel that you also are particularly gifted in carrying out this role as well. So I really thank you for sharing your experiences, and your stories with us. Thank you so much, Ruth. It was wonderful to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.